Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I'm offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello, everyone. Are you ready? I am ready. Today, we will have a doubly informative episode of High Truths. Twice as good because I will have two expert guests. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Today, I want to start with a talk about the three P's, public health, public safety, and prevention. What do you think about when you hear public health? These days, it's probably about COVID, but also prevention of diseases such as sexually transmitted infections and tuberculosis. Public health is increasingly involved in drug addiction and mental health. What about public safety? What is your picture of public safety? Officers in blue, handcuffs, perhaps jail? And what about prevention? What's the visual there? For COVID, it's probably masks and vaccines that inundate news stories, perhaps condoms for safe sex. For drugs, tertiary prevention would be naloxone for drug overdoses, and primary prevention would be teaching youth to avoid drugs in the first place. The three P's, public health, public safety, and prevention. Now, what if we got all of them, to get out of their silos and work together to save lives? What if public health would assist public safety when they encounter an overdose and get the family resources together to prevent another overdose within that circle of family or friends? What if public safety would assist public health with overdose mapping and information on communities and neighborhoods at risk? And what if both public health and public safety partnered and invested together in mutual prevention programs to prevent overdoses? What if public health and public safety were not suspicious of each other, but were collaborators and worked together? What if overdose prevention was just as important as infectious disease prevention and the three Ps were all on the same page? Today, I chair a task force called CREDO, Community Response to Drug Overdoses, we bring together the three Ps with the united goal of overdose prevention. We do this with very little resources and a lot of common will. 
because this is our community where we live and thrive and raise our children. And we do it because it's the right thing to do. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Lev. I'm a big fan of the podcast and thanks for giving me the opportunity to ask a question. My name is Jared Ingersoll and I'm an emergency medicine resident who spends a significant amount of time rotating through high volume emergency departments in California. And while we see a wide variety of patients and disease processes in the emergency department, I find that many patients are presenting with drug-related problems, often related to addiction. I was hoping you'd be able to discuss what resources are available to these patients other than emergency departments and how to best care and direct these patients to effective outpatient resources. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Iversoul. Emergency medicine is rewarding and challenging yet I wouldn't want to do anything else. Every day, every shift, you touch people's lives at a very scary moment for them. We are medical detectives, and we put others above ourselves. Let's meet two fellow emergency physicians who can answer your question about addiction resources and options. My absolute favorite husband and wife emergency physician team. They are amazing emergency physicians in the hospital and reach beyond into the community based on the needs they see in the emergency department. Dr. Reb Close is an emergency physician and lead clinical physician for Monterey County Prescribed Safe Initiative. She has been a regional director for the California Bridge to Treatment Program since 2019. Dr. Casey Grover practices with Dr. Close and is an emergency physician and serves as vice chief of staff at the Community Hospital of Monterey Peninsula. He hosts his own podcast called Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. You can find Dr. Reb Close and Dr. Casey Grover's bio on the High Truths show notes. Dr. Reb Close and Dr. Casey Grover, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Agreed. Thanks so much for having us. It, this is a pleasure and so much fun. I've been looking forward to uh, hanging out with you guys virtually. Uh, Reb and Casey, you're both husband and wife, emergency physician family, very active in Monterey County and California, in the hospital and outside the hospital, um, and uh, you're experts in emergency medicine and addiction medicine. And tell us about how you came about to to your expertise. Ladies first. All right. So um, again, thank you so much uh, for having us. And this is just such a pleasure to get to share some of our experience and our background and um, just to get to chat with you today. So thank you. Um, so how we got started um, was out of need, truly. Um, our emergency patients were suffering. Um, we weren't equipped both with our education and our experience to understand what we were seeing many years ago um, as people would come in with issues related to dependency and addiction. And so out of that need, we really developed a niche of trying to reach out to figure out what a patient may need and how that need can be met in the safest way possible. Um, there was a case that we had in my hospital where a 19 month old um, died of an opiate overdose. Oh. That was right at the beginning of, the, um, of my understanding of what was going on in my community. And that was really for me, a call to action. Yeah, and, and just a brief aside on our backgrounds, both uh, board certified in emergency medicine, Reb trained at UCLA, I trained at Stanford, and uh, we're in the process of going through the practice pathway for board certification in addiction medicine. 
And it's really been a journey. I got my Stanford gear on this morning. And when I was a resident, we treated addiction with stigma and rapid discharge. And we just truly didn't know. And, and having spent so much time interviewing patients outside of the hospital with addiction and just to listen to their stories, it's so different than what I was taught. And I think we originally started as doctors are giving too many opiates, we've got to stop it. And now it's almost morphed into doctors aren't doing enough for addiction, let's increase prescribing by doctors for addiction. And so we really have been here in Monterey County in California, just kind of hearing what the community needs and trying to respond to it. Because as you know, Renny, when there's crises, people come to the ER and we see what often kind of gets unnoticed in society. So I think the best way I can describe our work is we are advocates for our community and our patients, and this is the direction it's taken us. And I think I have, I have a similar path, right? Um, when you're in the emergency department, you have, I call it the, the front view of society. We get to see everything that, that's happening. And it's not like you had you know, a crisis in your family or you always wanted to do addiction. You're just emergency physicians. And every ER doc or emergency physician in the country, in the world, sees addiction. And, uh, and you're right. In training, we're like, okay, here's an alcoholic. Give them a banana bag and send them out, right? <laughs> That uh, banana bag was the word that we used for giving vitamins. And now we, and, and they were annoying patients, right? It's like, oh, you know, like, oh, you're there, you're, you know, you're a drug addict. It was annoying. And now these are my favorite patients. Mm -hmm. Mine too. Right? Totally. Yeah. Because initially I felt that I had nothing to offer. Right. 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 And you're frustrated with yourself. It's like, okay, oh, what am I going to do? Like, right. And I do. Right. I remember feeling that so many times of, I don't have anything to offer. And now, even if the only thing that the patient is able to take from me in a day is kindness, lack of judgment, understanding. Amazing how far that goes. Yeah. One, one thing I want to kind of unpack from what you said is that physicians all across America and even the world understand this. And I want to briefly bring up something that may refute that a little bit. I was listening to an EM rap episode when I was a medical student and Mel Herbert, who if anyone doesn't know is an emergency physician who does a lot of continuing medical education for the emergency medicine community. But he was speaking with physicians around the world talking about alcohol and problems related to alcohol in the emergency department. And this one Swedish emergency physician spoke up and said, what, alcohol problems in the emergency department? I never see that. And she proceeded to describe that the, essentially, this is simplified, but the front door to the hospital was here. And right next to it was the door to the drug and alcohol treatment program. And so people were basically siphoned away from going to kind of an undifferentiated medical setting to a specialty medical setting. And I remember kind of all of us at that time kind of talking about it among my med school classmates and being like, that's really interesting. Wow, I wonder if we would ever do anything like that here. And Reb works for the California Bridge Program uh, which is designed to try to increase access to addiction. And in some ways, that's, I think, what we've realized is kind of the short-term solution in America is that emergency physicians might as well contribute because we're going to see these patients anyways, and it feels so much better to be able to offer them services. So, you know, I remember in my career, maybe seven, eight years ago, a dad bringing his son in with a cocaine use disorder. And I still remember to this moment, the mental health nurse and myself standing, getting yelled at by this dad who was saying, my son's addicted to cocaine and you can't do anything. 
And now we're in a place where we have a drug and alcohol counselor. Um, you know, we certainly have peer uh, kind of support in the community now. We can get them connected to young people in recovery. Um, it's just, it's a different landscape. And, I, and it's actually made my practice easier. And I think my colleagues appreciate less of the like, oh, gosh, these patients are so frustrating. We actually have things to offer them now. All right. What I teach is that the stigma is more, is not always stigma. I mean, sometimes it is, but it's it's frustration with our inability to do something. Like you're homeless. So what what am I, as a doctor, what can I do for that? But if I'm given tools, oh, I can give a shelter. I can give food. I can give clothing. And then now it's like, oh, okay, I got something to do. I can I can show that. The stigma goes away because I've, I, I have the tools to, to fix that. And I think what you two have done that's really you know, stands out as far as an emergency medicine couple is that, you know, you only, so much you could do in a hospital. You created bridges, and that's beautiful, it's called California Bridge, within your community to offer services that are traditionally not available in the hospital. And I think that's what, that's what makes you guys so special. Um, and, you know, such a gem to Monterey to, to have you see the problems on the front lines and fix it by partnerships in your community. Well, in our community, partnerships just keep building and building, and it's the same thing. So our law enforcement teammates had a lot of the same frustrations that we did totally. that, oh, you know, we're running on Bob again, and he's, you know, he's got an alcohol use disorder, and guess what? Bob's going to have an alcohol use disorder tomorrow, and they were just so, I think, felt that their hands were so tied, and it was just the same problem over the same level of burnout that we experienced with that and then for the same patients isn't that amazing right same patients same frustrations law enforcement side and medical side what are we going to do and the way you fix it is by partnering together i I love that yeah i mean i'll um I'll, i'll speak to one of the things that we've been working on and this actually wasn't our idea we have to give credit where credit is due uh the city of monterey monterey police department Um, has noted that homelessness is a particularly bad problem in Monterey. It's relatively nice weather. We have a lot of tourists and therefore people on vacation tend to feel more generous. So it's apparently a particularly good place to be homeless if you're trying to panhandle. And so Monterey was getting really frustrated as a police department of like, we can't fix these things. So they put together what's called the community action team. We just had it yesterday. And it's now grown to like 15 different organizations. We had our hospital legal team come sit in to address confidentiality. We have a confidentiality agreement that we signed and it's county behavioral health, city police department, our emergency department, when available, our neighboring emergency departments, the Veterans Transition Center, drug and alcohol treatment programs. uh, uh, I think it's the women's, uh, there's like a domestic violence advocacy group. uh, there's think. the youth, so a safe place. Oh yeah, there's a like a youth um, homeless uh, youth yeah, ho- homeless yeah homeless youth shelter. Um, and what's really amazing is we all know these same people. Mm-hmm. Someone will say, "Has anyone seen Sarah?" They're like, "Oh gosh, I saw Sarah yesterday." Okay, Sarah needed this service, and then okay, well we've got this service available. Here's my cell phone number. When you see Sarah, call me. We'll get her connected. And we've done that for addiction. Somebody, the cops. We'll call us and be like, this, hey doc, this guy's doing the right thing. He wants to get help. He wants to get off heroin. How can I help him? I'm like, you know what? I'm working tonight at you know 6 p.m. Bring him in. The officer will physically bring him to the emergency department. Yeah. We'll induce onto, for example, buprenorphine. And then we've already got that connection with the drug and health 
drug and alcohol treatment program that they've got a bed ready. And it's really been cool to see it's a, it's a community-based approach. And what's so cool about this is it really breaks down stigma because you see the successes. And Rev and I were talking about this this morning. So I think one of the reasons why we as emergency physicians sometimes are nihilistic about addiction is we see the ones that don't get better. We see the ones getting brought in day after day, homeless with an alcohol use disorder or whatever. And now that I've started working in the outpatient addiction recovery kind of medical field, it's totally different. These people are doing great. Like addiction outpatient, you know, hey, Bob, how you doing? Great, doc. Can I have a refill? It's so different. And with our law enforcement, I think they even see a worse spectrum, meaning that they're the ones getting called for public disturbances. They see the same guy every day in the same spot. And what's been so cool about this community action team is we start to see the successes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of our most absolutely challenging patients with alcohol use disorder, like this man can drink his alcohol level up to like a 0.5, a 0.6. And he's in treatment. He's been in treatment for the last six weeks. And it was almost like a collective hurrah from everybody who's been working to try to work with this guy. And my emergency physicians are so frustrated with this man. And I can't wait to announce to my group that our community efforts have gotten this this gentleman into treatment. You should show a picture of him because I bet he not only acts differently. I bet you he physically looks differently. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a transformation. You get your real, I tell this is not you when you're like high, that's not who you are. You're hiding yourself. But once you're, once you're kind of detoxed, that's who you really are. Yeah. Oh my goodness. We even see that because Casey and I both um, work at the um, syringe exchange that we have locally. And it's a syringe exchange, but also low, well, no barrier um, treatment program. And so we've had patients come through and they come through for the first three or four or five weeks, exchanging syringes, getting um, safe supplies, grabbing those things. And then, you know, three or four weeks into it'll be, Hey, can I, can I talk to the doc? And we start the treatment and now I'm getting these patients that come back every single week. That's how the clinic runs, right? You have to come back every week. They come every week. They show up on time. I get to see them heal. Like you said, but yeah. last week I was like, oh my gosh, it's you. Yeah. And instead of when they came in the first time, now they come in like, hey doc, how are you? <laughs> That's, awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It's unreal. It's you so know, cool. we were actually talking about this on shift last night in the emergency department. Four of my, four or five of my physicians and myself were just kind of chatting while we were waiting for a, a bolus of patients to be roomed. And we were trying to talk about what we felt was the most kind of destructive illness that we mm-hmm. see in medicine, and in no particular order, we we ranked substance use, schizophrenia, and cancer. And when we broke it down, we felt like schizophrenia and substance use were kind of a step above cancer, simply because cancer is often able to give people, or sorry, oncologists are often able to give people a prognosis. Like, uh, this tumor is, is, is not gonna respond well, I'm going to estimate this number of months or on the opposite, Hey, your tumor is this, you know, receptor positive. We've got this great new chemotherapy. This is treatable, but with substance use and schizophrenia, it's this unknown. Will they respond to medication? Will they be non-compliant? And then you think of the family effects, you know, seeing your loved one 
steal from you, seeing your loved one disheveled and disorganized, having to let your loved one be homeless. It's just so, those two are so destructive. And then as we know, Ronit, from our practice in the emergency department, then you have the trifecta of schizophrenia, homelessness, and substance use. And gosh, those, those patients are so hard to help. Um, I think in some ways, as Reb and I learn more about addiction, the best place to intervene is before it ever develops. And in some ways, that's because the various substances have such a profound effect on how the brain develops and adapts. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you're familiar with this term of post-acute withdrawal syndrome, but we've been learning and we're going to do some research on it of just when a person stops, the brain is really disorganized as it's adapted, trying to survive to exposure to a substance. And so really looking at, you know, kind of um, how do we ever prevent those changes from happening? Um, and, you know, I'm going to go to one of the local high schools next week and do some drug education. And it's almost, that's kind of the message of, um, you know, hey, you know, you might see on TV commercials for beer. If you choose to drink now in your teens, there's a high probability that you'll develop a problem. And that's never going to be something that if you decide you want to do as an adult, you can enjoy. If you wait and allow your brain to develop without substances, you then develop the ability to potentially, if you think you want to enjoy a beer periodically without it being a destructive force in your life. And so in talking to some of the prevention efforts, their message is not just say no, but delay. And then if you decide you want that to be a part of your life, it won't be something that's so destructive. And I, I assume that, you know, that's controversial because some people would recommend abstinence only, but I mean, how do you get a bunch of 15 year olds to care about what you're talking about? Well, I, I think that you, you're, you're spot on in, in the importance of prevention, right? You, we, it, and we could even like, we even have numbers on that for every dollar that you spend on treatment, you can save, you know, $9 in the future for every $18 you spend, for every dollar you spend on prevention, you save $18. So really, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We, if we continue to flood and openly use drugs, we're, we're creating a pipeline of people who need treatment which may or may not work, and you can never keep up with it, or we can go as you're doing and going to schools and, and teaching protection of the brain. Not a war on drugs, but uh, protecting your brain. Your brain is still growing till you're 25, 27 years old. And if you protect that brain, you know, it, you know, your, your, your myelin isn't finished growing. You're, you're seeing, you know, and kids want to get as tall as possible. You know, they want to, you know, it's like, okay, you're 16 years old. You're as tall as you're going to be. And maybe you're in college or maybe you're in, or maybe you're in the military. Maybe um, you're married, but you're not 27 years old. Your brain's still growing. So you want those pathways to be um, good. And, and what, it doesn't matter whether it's alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, whatever. If you're exposing your developing brain, your chances are of addiction is four to seven times higher than, than for me with all the other consequences and, and stuff. So I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And then if you get people to not use, keep them alive till 25 is one of those, the mantras that I've heard, keep them alive till 25. Then if you just do that and nothing else in this country, you'll have less addiction, period, because you'll have less exposure. Have we talked about the Iceland <clears throat> experiment? Oh, go ahead. Are you familiar with it? 
I don't think it's an experiment. They actually did that. Yeah, We've we, talked to them and how they did that, but it was a whole of society approach. And right. we're just so not there here. Yeah, so the, 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 it started out as an experiment, but has turned into a, a program, Kids in Iceland. Um, and just kind of, this speaks exactly to what we're talking about. They were able to drop, you know, consumption of cigarettes, marijuana, and alcohol by as much as, you know, 90, 90, 90% in these yeah. kids. And what's really interesting is the way they did it. And we as uh, parents think about this all the time with how we parent, which is understand how your child's brain works and give them what the brain needs as it's growing and developing to find healthy strategies to life's problems. For example, they looked at kids that were doing vandalism or stealing or kind of stress eaters. And what they found is that some of those behaviors were early kind of attempts to externally control what's going on internally. In other words, they found that kids that were seeking a rush would steal or vandalize. And those kids, when they had access to substances, were predisposed to things like alcohol or stimulants that might be kind of uh, invigorating. And what they found in the kids that were more kind of the stress eaters, um, that they were more of the types that wanted to withdraw and find kind of that like soothing comfort. And they were more, those kids were more likely to be the ones that would use opiates or sedatives. Uh, and again, alcohol, alcohol is a little bit of a mixed role. But what they did with these kids is they tried to say, okay, if you need something exhilarating, let's pick mountain biking or let's pick surfing to give them that same exhilaration in a constructive way. And same thing with the kids that were more withdrawn. It was music or art or potentially yoga or, you know, whatever it was. And I tell this to patients all the time. People with a substance use disorder are really smart. They have a problem and they find a substance that fixes that problem. However, as we know as physicians, those substances, when used repeatedly, lead to significant health consequences. So kind of the, the name of the game is in those kids is to substitute a healthy strategy for what they may perceive as a substance as their solution. And I think that is kind of how I think about the Iceland model. And so for our kid, it's finding out what fits well for her mentally to keep her engaged and supported. And then also trying to provide her with the kind of the mental models of you had a bad day. They're going to happen Let's talk through how we're going to deal with that. Because I think from, from what I've seen from Iceland and then obviously practicing in the emergency department, that seems to be so much of it is these kids just, they feel what they feel and they don't know what to do and substances are easy to find and plentiful. I, I think what, what made Iceland special that we, we don't have, we, we can duplicate some of those things. Like you definitely found a beautiful thing, you know, what's causing that and let's find a, re, a healthy replacement. What, what made Iceland so successful to 90% is they had the entire society on board, right? They had all the parents on board, the teachers on board, the government on board with a united message. And we're, um, we're not that united. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, so it, I think, um, you know, we just have gotten, and I, I, I shouldn't say we because Rev did all the work. Uh, we just got a CDC drug-free communities grant and um, we're going to be partnering with one of our local schools to dig in for the next five years to find out what makes our kids tick. And one of the taglines for the grant when you log in to do the progress report, which I did yesterday and it took forever, but is 
Local problems need local solutions. So I think we're looking at what can we do in Monterey County in our little peninsula? And then kind of like, you know, we did, gosh, back in what, 2013 with you, Run Eat, is we connected with people around the state and said, this is what worked for us. What are you doing? That's a great idea. Let's share. Yeah. Yeah. We always, we bounce back ideas back and forth. I love it. Um, Dr. Jared Ingersoll is an emergency medicine resident, and he noticed that there are many patients who come to the emergency department with addiction, like we've just been talking about. And he's wondering, is are there better ways? Is there better solutions? Should they really be coming to the emergency department? Or are there alternatives? And you kind of touched on that when you mentioned the European model of like a little place next door instead. But what what uh, what are what advice can we give um, our young doctor? So from my standpoint, um, wherever the patient is going to be able to be connected is the right answer. So if that patient only feels safe approaching an ER, and, and we all know with the stigma that they've received historically, that may not be the case, but the ER should be ready, in my opinion, to receive that patient, have a connection for that patient to their next steps of care, whatever that may be. And I've told patients in the ER, if the only thing I can help you with today is where to find safe supplies, yes, I will help you find safe supplies. And when you're ready for the next step, yes, we're going to be ready for you. And so that, that is one place, but literally Casey and I take it to the street and it was kind of, I guess, I don't know if funny is the right word, but yesterday I was in a meeting with our jail team and our treatment programs because we're trying to figure out exactly this question. You know, the patient say lands in the ER straight from jail, needs to go to the treatment program. How do we communicate? Or patient goes to jail, was in treatment program, gets released, overdoses and ends up in the ER. Mm -hmm. We all know these circles, right? So the answer needs to be wherever the patient is, in my opinion. And why I said it was kind of, uh, I guess, funny being an interesting word to use at the jail yesterday, is they were talking about patients that are in treatment and on you know, medications for opiate um, use disorder, and then they end up in jail and they find out in jail that they're using other substances. And there's this stigma and frustration of you're using while on treatment. And I said, guys, when I'm taking care of patients on the street and they come in for a, a um, safe meth pipe and buprenorphine, I'm okay with that. Yes, my patients are using meth all the time. But if they're using buprenorphine and not in addition using heroin or fentanyl, and granted, I know fentanyl is in everything because I test it, but they're safer than if they weren't using buprenorphine. And the jail team was, was somewhat <laughs> startled with me. I'm like, my patients use meth. I'm okay with that. If they want help, and want to get into a program. And I don't know if I'm okay with that. Oh, yeah, that's, see, that's why I said it's kind of funny because I was like, well, I- I'm not okay with that, but it's it's a step in the right direction. Right. Just like the, right. the same thing. If all I can do today is provide safe supplies, yes. And if today I can give you buprenorphine and you're still using right. meth, when you're ready, we can work on that too. You're absolutely yeah. right. That's why I said it's kind of a weird way to think of it. I think um, uh, Congressman Patrick Kennedy, when he talks about harm reduction- you know, people say, well, what do you think of harm reduction? I've heard him say, it's like, okay, we, we agree in meeting people where they are. We don't want them to stay where they are. 
And I thought that that was a very nice way to that say it. That is a yeah. nice way to put it. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. My view on harm reduction is I'm going to reduce the harm of what you're doing while I try to get you treatment. Yeah. Um, to answer our, our physician's question, I, I have a kind of a different take. Um, and I think I'm going to make an analogy here that makes sense. It may You have a different take, husband and wife, you don't agree all the time? Oh goodness, don't get me started. <laughs> Not on the grocery store, ever. <laughs> so imagine a patient, let's say, so this happened last night. A patient comes into the emergency department after tripping and has ankle pain, okay? So the first thing I do is I may do a diagnostic test. I did an x-ray and I found that she had a distal fibular fracture. Um, it was something that wasn't too displaced uh, but it was high enough up against the syndesmosis that there's the possibility she may require plating, but she's not going to need an operative surgery. It's not a bimal or a trilateral. Okay. Now say that in English so our listeners My apologies. Patient goes into the ER. <laughs> she's got pain. She's got a broken ankle. It might need surgery, but it's not emergency surgery. Okay. So I then provide her with a referral to an orthopedic surgeon. I provide her with a splint to temporize uh, and, and make, so, make it so that that fracture doesn't move, a temporary cast. I give her crutches and I give her medication. If we think about addiction as a medical illness, someone comes to the hospital saying they have a problem with opiates. I, as a physician, I go make an assessment and make a diagnosis of opiate use disorder. I then make a referral to an addiction medicine clinic for follow-up. And I prescribe medication to help manage that condition until they're able to get follow-up. It's really not that different, right? We come in, we make a diagnosis, we provide an, an appropriate treatment plan. Depending on how you wanna think about it, what we do with addiction is a lot less than what we do with fractures. So I'll give you an example. Let's say we tell somebody who comes in asking for help with opiates, hey, you just gotta stop, here's a list of clinical referrals. That's like me sending this patient with a fracture out with no crutches, so they have to walk on their hands and their good foot to try to walk to the orthopedic clinic. Oh, and I didn't give them really a good list of orthopedic folks that they could follow up with. I gave them just a list. So they have to make a bunch of phone calls. In other words, if I make it hard for the patient to get care, regardless of their illness, they're not going to have a good outcome. Turning that around, what we're doing now with addiction in the emergency department is we're realizing it's showing up like any other medical illness. We now have a drug and alcohol counselor that can help people make a warm handoff to a treatment program. That's like me calling the orthopedist. You know, hey, Scott, I've got a lady with a bad fracture. Can you see her next week? No problem, right? So I think in some ways, addiction, I don't understand why we make it different, right? What if, for example, like with buprenorphine, you have to have a special waiver as a doctor to prescribe buprenorphine, which is a medication for opiate addiction. What if I had to have an ankle certification? Oh gosh, your ankle, really? Oh, I'm so sorry. I don't have an ankle certification. You sure it wasn't your wrist? I mean, it just, to me, I've learned that. You know, you make such a really good point to the rest of medicine that I, I say, like, I love my emergency department and I think that we provide the, like the best care. And it's not because we're, you know, level one trauma center teaching institution. I say the reason I love our, our hospitals is because of the relationships we have among the doctors. Because of that example that you said, hey, Scott, I got an ankle fracture. Can you help me? Right. Or I, I, you know, you know, hey, Dave, I got this abdominal pain and urological problem. I don't know what it is. Can you come help me? And it's like, yeah, sure. Instead of like, well, can you handle that yourself? Or, you know, it's it's those relationships in in any part of medicine, right? Whether it's an abdominal surgical problem or orthopedic problem that we have that I think that makes us really 
help patients the best is the relationships we have. And the same thing you're showing with addiction. We have, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get some help for you if you want it. Well, it's just, it's, it's truly, it is a medical illness. I mean, people with depression come to the emergency department all the time. Um, there is certainly some stigma there as well. But I think kind of my perspective to answer uh, our resident physician's question, addiction patients are going to come to the ER. If we do a lousy job at trying to get them services, they're going to bounce back just as much as if we sent the ankle fracture patient home with our crutches. They're going to come back because they can't get around. So I look at, look at it as an opportunity. Let's do the most we can for this patient, as I would for any patient, to set them up for success. I think what's hard, though, is when people are in denial or don't want treatment. Mm. And those are really hard. And you see that mostly yeah. with methamphetamine. It's the methamphetamine psychosis. And cannabis. And no, absolutely. True. But I feel like just in either one of those cases, you spend your time kind of arguing with the patient that they need help. Those are frustrating. I don't know if I have a good answer with those, unless you can offer people something to say, maybe we should try some medication to make you feel better. And maybe it might be something that you don't need to use as much cannabis. Because it's the same thing, right? People feel either anxiety or depression or whatever, and they use the cannabis there's a cannabis withdrawal syndrome and they're kind of self-medicating with cannabis there. So I've started offering gabapentin to my patients uh, with cannabis dependence to offer them. This might actually help you come off of it. There's a small study that shows that uh, gabapentin can be helpful in reducing symptoms of cannabis withdrawal. So again, it's just, it's, it's it's us being creative, right? So we're starting to look at with, uh, looking at the possibility of doing long acting injectable naltrexone in the emergency department, right? If, uh, you know, if we can't get people into a clinic to get a particular medication that's going to work, why don't we just do it when they're stuck with us anyways? Love it. So I guess for, um, for Jared, the, you know, it, it, and this has been true for, for the, you know, the lifespan of emergency medicine that we are the safety net. So whatever comes into our doors, totally. we're there and we welcome you, whatever the problem is, whether it's a heart attack or a trauma or a well baby check or, or someone with addiction, we're there for you with open arms 24 seven. But we, but we have to do as, as a specialty and as a society and as a medical community, what you guys are doing in, in Monterey, which is, okay, these are problems. Let's try to fix them. We need to fix it because I don't think it's great to have, you know, people with addiction come in the emergency department all the time. We, I mean, you know, my husband's a dentist, so it'd be great if people never had cavities, right? Right. You know, but he's there if you want it. So that's how I view emergency medicine. I'd rather, you know, be out of a job. <laughs> I'd rather n have no people have accidents. I don't want anybody to fall down. I don't want anyone to have addiction. And what can I do maybe outside the, I mean, once you're in the doors, you're mine. I'm going to take care of you the best I can. But, but I do think that as emergency physicians, when we have that front view of, of the problems in society, that, that um, collectively we have a responsibility to do that and, and, and figure out ways where people don't need to come to the emergency department right. for addiction. One of the things that could be helpful is for a department is to have a champion or champions. So one of our physicians is our lead for stroke. And whenever I have a question like, John, oh, what's the latest in what we're doing with large vessel occlusions? And John knows that's his niche in our department. Mm -hmm. We've got one physician whose uh, her niche is interacting with our EMS system, our, our ambulance and paramedics. And I'd be like, Michelle, oh, gosh, I have a question. 
we've done that for our department. Right. Um, you know, we write protocols, we're always available, call, text, whatever, even on shift, like, hey Casey, how would you how would you dose this suboxone? I think that's one kind of peer-to-peer. You know, I don't expect all of my colleagues to get really into that deep level of extra knowledge on addiction, but I want them to have access to mine. So I think that's what we've done in our department is it's like, hey, I got a question. Sure, I'm happy to help. Just as much as I need help when the protocol for large vessel occlusion for stroke has changed. Yeah, that's great. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about your unique listen and, and tell us what it's like to have a husband and wife, you know, medical team. Do you ever, do you ever say, oh, honey, I'm tired. Can you go into my shift today? <laughs> we did a fair amount of that. Seriously, when, uh, with all the COVID chaos. Yeah. Um, it was like, oh, you can go. I'll stay home. Or what did you do? Yeah. So I, I was the medical director for the department. So I was at the hospital essentially every day in March and April of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then because our daughter was homeschooling, um, we, we flopped everything around, you know, we had to, it was okay. You're going to have to take the shift today because, you know, our daughter needs this and you're going to be at the hospital anyway. So it was, it was pretty hairy. It's been kind of nice though. And with the addiction work and the community work, we've in many ways taken on different parts of the project you know, so as Casey mentioned, I got the CDC grant. I've been working really hard to organize how to make this project something that can continue in perpetuity, as I see it, and evolve as needed. So I don't need things that are very constricting, but I do need resources that we can use to build and to move forward. And so, you know, I've taken on a lot of that work. Casey initially did, I think, essentially all of the naloxone training for all of our law enforcement agencies. Um, I have become, we, we tease about it. And again, I probably say many things are a little more flippant than they should be, but that I'm the Narcan dealer for Monterey County. <laughs> um, because we have how many doses? Oh in my garage? gosh. <laughs> so people will email me or call a program who calls me parents. And they'll say, I need Narcan for my kid. I'm like, gotcha. I'll do the training. I'll meet them wherever, like truly. That's awesome. To do That's what awesome. the community needs. And so we've taken on different roles. I, I'm leading our youth collaborative now, you know, so getting back to the reaction to the 15 to 20 year old in the ER with an overdose versus prevention, teaching the five-year-olds what is age appropriate of coping and asking for help and, you know, healthy um, strategies. And so I've taken on that. And so it's been really fun because we, we counsel and, and request ideas and run things by each other and yet we both have even within our two specialties these kind of different um niches for our outreach it's really fun and you have you have a daughter how old's your daughter she's 12 12 so what does she hear all day long does she hear like addiction and emergency medicine Uh all day long and (laughs) yeah i mean i was gonna joke that people feel bad for us because the date night for rev and i is watching you know dope sick on hulu or going for a walk and discussing drug policy it's true um so our our daughter is uh has grown up basically hearing us talk about this um and she knows how to reverse an overdose with narcan i'm very confident she could rescue someone oh easily um and i think she's aware of the human side of it Mm -hmm. because we'll come home from a shift and kind of decompress i think you know um you know emergency medicine is is really emotionally very challenging. Um, you see people at their worst and I'll sometimes have to come home and decompress and our daughter will listen. And 
I think she's heard the human side and the stories and she has met some people that have died of overdose and she's met people in recovery. Her goal is to be a ski patrol and a specialist. <laughs> That's her plan. That's been for about six years. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, I think this comes down to um, a parenting moment we had a few years ago where it was right after Halloween and there was some, you know, red 40, chewy, sweet, horribly toxic candy. And Rev is going, no, you can't have any candy. And I said, Rev, you know, because um, I, I had an eating disorder and that really profoundly shaped my development as a young man. And so having lived with a very unhealthy, toxic relationship, of food, I was just read, we really cannot go there. Sugar is a vice. We have to teach our daughter how to live in a world where there are vices. And rather than saying, no, let's say, let's give you the facts and you can hopefully make a helpful decision. And I think we've taken that same approach as parents to say, you know, she's right now has a, a classmate at school that's being mean. And we're talking about what do you do with that? Or as she gets into college and, you know, alcohol's everywhere on college campuses, it's, hey, it's a vice. What are you going to do with it? So I think that's kind of how we think about it is, you know, there are bad things in the world. We have to learn how to deal with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's funny. My, I mean, I have have four kids and I, um, I I don't think I did a good job of like sheltering uh, my feelings after a shift. (laughs) Of what happening? So they grew up again hearing that's the dinner conversations that they hear, um, and they grew up like I hate what you do. I hate what you do. Um, and uh, and now two two of my daughters, you I know, mean, both my daughters are, are in medical school. So it's like they didn't hate it that much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but I think though it's it's also it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm going to embarrass my daughter here if she ever listens to uh, to this. But she and a friend were playing with these little magnetic balls, oh. and she got two of them stuck in her nose. And she was just mortified. Devastated. I was like, sweetheart, that's easy peasy. And this I is what I do. These. So I laid her down on the kitchen table and popped him out. Uh, with, yep. with The, the kitchen out. table has been our little ER yeah, for many absolutely. years. <laughs> so with that, I think she sees the, the usefulness of, yeah. of the, the skills. Set. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, we'll be up snowboarding in Lake Tahoe and our friends are like, can you look at my hand? Yeah, no problem. So I think, I, yeah. think I, I look at the skill set of being an emergency physician as some of the most useful of any skills I can imagine. Yeah, she's yeah. always talking about how grateful she is. Like, oh, thank goodness, I have two ER docs as parents. You guys can handle this. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But my you, kids would be like, you know, somebody would be sick on the airplane. Oh, oh, I'll get my mom. You know, someone's sick on the beach. I'll get my mom. It's like, oh. <laughs> I love it. I love it. She's actually really excited to start working with us at the syringe exchanges. Oh, she's nice. Planning her summer, like I would like to go on these days, and she's, what can I make? How can I help? And I think she gets that part of it. Is there are people? that we can help. And yeah. that means the world to her. So totally. yeah, I, I, I used my kids as slave labor too. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. That kid's been stickering for years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we talked about the challenging the emergency department. I, I kind of in the intro mentioned that the emergency department can also be a violent place. Have you, have you had violence in the emergency department? Yeah. Or is Monterey like nicer? downtown San Diego. We have just as much meth yeah. as everybody else. But yeah. but violence towards yourself. Like we call 911 for our own staff several times a month. So speaking of parenting, one thing, and once again, give credit where credit is due. Um, Reb signed our daughter up for Taekwondo at a very early age <laughs> and then dragged her and me onto the mat as well. 
So the entire family is actually second degree black belts in Taekwondo. <laughs> and so I am over six feet tall and I exercise pretty regularly and I feel threatened on shift. And I have to put that in perspective because I'm a white physician male over six feet tall. And when I, if I feel threatened, I can only imagine how a person of a different kind of personal experience might feel. And so I find myself like getting into my fighting position a couple of times when somebody's really escalating. Um, violence is absolutely in our department. We actually, and again, give credit where credit is due, created a program to partner with our police to do um, a to use a true narc, a handheld mass spectrometer to surveil our, our drugs in our community. But as an added bonus, it put police on our campus more as a show of force. And we also now, thanks to the hospital, have two um, functionally police dogs that our security service uh-huh. uses. And it's really interesting because our approach at our hospital has to try to de-escalate with a show of force, meaning we're going to have 15 guys here you're not going to want to fight 15 guys. You're going to realize you're going to lose and you're going to accept the medication the nurse is trying to offer you to calm down. Sometimes people aren't intimidated by 15 guys, but the dogs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. They will get that dog, get that dog away from me. <laughs> people so are, one, one dog's better than 15 guys. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and these are people who feel threatened. They may totally. be very intoxicated. They may be seriously mentally ill. We are also increasingly seeing with our dementia population that they just, they're disoriented, they're, they have nowhere to go. And it's, it's really, um, it's our institution, kudos to, to Community Hospital of the Monterey Peninsula where we work, actually dedicated security to the emergency department 24 seven because we were seeing escalation of violence against our staff. Yeah, and that was actually part of the reasoning for how we did the true narc. So one of my law enforcement colleagues called me about a year ago now, and he asked about it, you know, mass spectrometry for testing drugs. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, well, in the past, we used to have NIC kits in the back of the car and we'd find drugs and we would test them with the NIC kit. And then we'd have some idea of what we were up against. But now with the fentanyl, we don't do any of our own testing. And we send them to the state if they test them, which they may not because there's so many. If they test them, it's a several month delay. And he said, there's this device, and the one that we chose to use was a TrueNARC, but he said, there's this device that will test them in real time. Do you think that's anything we could kind of work on as a team? And of course, my answer to everything is yes. And so I started looking into it and then realized when I was sitting in one of our ER meetings and we were talking about all the violence and they were just, oh my gosh, you know, what's happening with the patients and how are we going to keep the staff safe? And I thought, wait a minute. So if law enforcement is coming on campus to test drugs. I'll tell you when I pull into the parking lot and there are five cop cars, I pay attention. And I thought, huh, I wonder if just having that presence may help decrease some of the violence. I'm not asking them to do anything. Just come by, test your drugs. Thank you, whatever you need. And it works. Like they're on, and and the, the, camaraderie of, you know, hey doc, or and even with our security team, oh, hey, Bob, how are you? And, and just everybody realizing we're all on the same team, incredible. And so I, I don't know that we have numbers to say it's changed the violence dramatically, I haven't heard. You could probably easily count that, how many 911 calls do you make? Totally. You know, was, before was, and after. Sure we, could get that. we actually, yeah. our, our security program at our hospital is very robust. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't often have to call law enforcement, fortunately. 
That's great. Well, we we do too, but we still when, when I've been assaulted, I uh, um by a patient on meth. I was just kind of like, hey, what's what what are you having in there? And then she just like pushed me to the ground, and nine one one SWAT team came by. <laughs> well, Doctor down. I, I, it, it, I was gonna say I was working maybe six months ago, and yeah. this woman, and unfortunately, this is a recurrent theme using methamphetamines was very delusional because of the methamphetamines and ran out of her room and found a phlebotomist oh, and just no. absolutely decked her. And she, the phlebotomist was very shaken. I mean, she was maybe 15 feet from me. And it just, it, it's really been traumatic for that phlebotomist. And yeah. she's a very strong woman. She and I have talked about it many times. Um, and um, it, it just, it's, it's been, it's just, it's, it's, we, particularly with COVID, we put our lives on the line to take care of people. And then to be met with physical violence is just, it's so demoralizing for staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. And that's, and I, and yeah. And again, association with drugs, uh, when that happens, right. it's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. So you, you've been able to, you know, connect medical community, public health with law enforcement and overcome, you know, we talk about stigma, what we think about stigma for patients, but there's, Stigma between these two agencies, like, you know, you know, these doctors, what do they know? Or or law enforcement, they just take people to jail, you know? Like, and so how were you able to make that bridge in, in your community in such a good way? And, and, and you're doing projects that are so collaborative in nature. Um, many places in California want to get ODMAP, which is a tool. It's really a prevention tool. It's a harm reduction tool. But because it comes and housed with law enforcement, public health is like, oh, well, we don't know if we want to work with these people. How, how do you get, how you get over that? Yeah. <laughs> Rev is the queen of ODMAP. <laughs> well, so. We need that. Well, maybe explain, explain that. It's a tool, it's, it's a nationwide tool, but it, it tracks overdoses. Yeah. Right? So literally yesterday, one of our law enforcement colleagues, and it's, I actually haven't gotten to tell you this yet, one of the patients we were discussing at the the community action team this week passed away. Um, And so law enforcement contacted me and said, you know, we've had a a fatality and they provided me the information. I uploaded it into ODMAP last night. Um, And earlier in the day, we had another non-fatal case come through, um, they, they get referred to me, uh, we have a number of pathways where it happens. And I put it into the map. We had a spike alert because of the cases that were coming in and that goes to public health and public health goes, huh, what's going on? And the DEA is also, huh, I wonder what we need to do in that area. So what last night happened is one of our DEA agents came over and received, um, some harm reduction bags that we have. So as part of our community outreach, working with law enforcement. I had a patient at the syringe exchange say to me, you know, the docs took my syringe. Not not the docs, the cops. Oh, thank you. The the cops took my sharps container. He was really frustrated. And I thought, what if the cops hand out sharps containers? Would that happen? And so turn it around. We've made bags. They have Narcan, both injectable and nasal. They have sharps containers. They have wound care supplies, fentanyl test strips. What else is in there? I even put chapstick in there for crying out loud because being homeless is too hard. And anything I can do to make it nicer. Oh, and then all the the resources for 
um, talking about fentanyl and the street drugs and um, how to reverse an overdose and where are the treatment connections in our community. So anyway, mm -hmm. I handed five of these bags over to my DEA teammates last night. Just say, here, take it into the street in the community. You know where the ODs are happening, you know, via OD maps. You can right. see where the need is. If you're going there anyway, have something you can offer to the community to help. And so I always have been just jealous of infectious disease. I used to be jealous of gonorrhea and chlamydia. Now I'm just jealous of COVID because you, you map it, you track it, you trace it, you treat it, and we should be doing the same thing. Exactly. Well, so the, exactly. the reason this came up in our community is um, in 2019, in October, yeah. we had, I think, 10 overdoses in a weekend, one of which was fatal in a 16-year-old. And that was kind of the fentanyl's here moment for us. Yeah. And we got a we called kind of an emergency meeting okay. of all of our partners. And someone said, why don't you guys use ODMAP? And we went, what's, what's ODMAP? So what ODMAP is, it's essentially a secure mapping software that allows you to track where an overdose occurs and roughly what type of overdose it is. Mm -hmm. It's de-identified. And kind of like if you search on Yelp and you get those little bubbles that show you all the different hits you've got, it looks a little bit like that. So you can literally... Uh, once the data is in the map, search how many doses uh, or how many overdoses happen that receive Narcan. And as you zoom out and zoom in, you can literally look down to the street level or look at the county level. And so um, unfortunately, it's been a bit of a labor of love um, on Reb's part because she does a lot of the data entry. And that's been a, big of a, a bit of a barrier is trying to figure out who is responsible for getting the data into the map. Now, once the data is in, it is phenomenal. We do presentations and people say, I don't really think it's a problem in our community. We show them the map and they go, oh my gosh, there are so many dots, each of those representing an overdose. And, right. I mean, we've actually and we're used to those dots, right? We see those COVID dots. Mm -hmm. People know what that is, right? Yep. And even when people are just, oh, that's not, that's not our community. I literally did a presentation the other day as we were talking about this CDC grant in one of our local schools that we work with. And I put up OD maps and I dropped pins for the schools. Like that's where your ODs are. You know, it's it, just so you're aware, this is our neighborhood. These are our people. These are our neighbors. We need that. That's amazing. And so we, it's made a huge difference. It is. I think we're also, and then we're going to have to work on that and getting this uh, throughout, you know, I feel like California is behind that. We need to do a little bit more on that. Well, and um, working on an integration with, AMR. That's um, our ambulance provider. Yeah. American yeah. That's what you need to do. That's yeah. where it is. That'll, you shouldn't be the one typing everything at, at night, you know, <laughs> it needs to be automated. Right. Yeah. And so I've been working really closely with them to go through the data that they, you know, they share with first watch, which is, um, yeah, what helps them with, um, some of the reporting and, and their data management and what data First Watch has available and how we can use that to go directly into OD maps. And I've been working basically one-on-one -on -one with that team with all the overdoses that are getting pushed to me and comparing it with what would be able to be automatically uploaded to fine-tune that process. Because once we fine-tune it, it's just everybody's to use. I mean, I, haven't, I want everybody to have access to this because it helps the community. When public health asks me what's happening and where, I'm like, well, let me just show you. 
Right. You need data first. You can't just like work nilly nilly. This gives you some, this gives you science to, to where to deploy resources. Totally. So we can talk forever and, and we just should because it's fun. Um, but I, I want to kind of maybe close with telling us your future plans because you guys always have brilliant ideas of, of how to integrate things in your community. Um, so for me, it's, it's a little bit of a circuitous route. I'm vice chief of staff for my hospital and I will be chief of staff in 10 months. Um, and, uh, our kind of near or our near goal future for me is to finish up, uh, getting my board certification in addiction medicine and then seeing where being chief of staff as an addiction physician, what that does. Uh, turns out our hospital didn't even have privileges in addiction medicine. So since I'm on the credentialing committee now, we're creating credentials for addiction medicine. So we got a couple of papers that we're working on. Um, we've got to start studying for boards. I'm going to continue with my uh, medical education podcast on addiction. Uh, that's so called- go ahead, give us a plug. Oh, thank you. So, so addiction in emergency medicine and acute care. It's on uh, uh, Apple uh, Apple podcast app. It's on Spotify. Um, for me, it's been basically, I have a problem because I can't answer a question and it's di- digging into the medical research on it to be able to provide kind of a best recommendation on what's, what wants to be done for a particular condition. Um, and then beyond that, it's also looking at how do we start building a service line um, uh, uh, of addiction in our hospital. I'm going to try to make a joke here. While you are jealous of gonorrhea, we are jealous of Amy Moulin. So Amy Moulin is like us, emergency medicine addiction at UC Davis, and she's rolled out an addiction service line and she does consult in their hospital for addiction. That's right. I, yeah, I say for that, I say I'm addiction, um, jealous of palliative care. Oh, us too. Because, right, right, because they have the service. If yep. someone's dying, you you consult and we, we should have an addiction medicine service at every large hospital in America, just like there is a palliative care service. 100%, and that's exactly on our list is I call it for lack of a, of a defined name yet, but the complex pain and chemical dependency service. Um, because obviously complex pain is a big part of making sure that we do not have pain orphans, you know, patients that are So like we, our hospital has a pain service and I approached them years ago to maybe they can like add addiction to that. And they were like, no, we don't, it's not. Really? Because that's they didn't, they weren't willing, but but maybe if you don't have pain, you can build from scratch what you want. Build the whole thing. So, so Reb, your turn. What do you what do you oh, see in the near future? So yeah, I obviously am working towards my certification as well. I think I'm not nearly as fancy as chief of staff over here, <laughs> but that's okay. I'm louder, so it works out nicely. Um, but then we are gonna we're working on the build of that um, chemical dependency service um, following Amy's um, Amy's work and the way that she's pulled it together, and then the youth. I mean, truly, I have, I just uh, was able to hire a project coordinator for our youth collaborative and really put our efforts into, we're going to still do the respond to the acute need. I mean, we have to, but we've got to turn, we've just got to change the trajectory that we're on. And I think yeah. the way we can do that is to reach. Stop the bleeding. It's like, okay, treatment's like giving blood transfusion to, to, to someone who's bleeding, but you got to like stop it and prevent it in the first place. Right. So that's, that's so important. And that's how I look at the youth. I mean, we formed these youth councils, the kids on their age 12 to 19, and they talk about different things that are going on and media messages and stuff. If I get them at 12 engaged in making a difference, 
that's where you need to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I want to say thank you to, I want to say thank you to Jared uh, Ingersoll for his question and um, our young physician of, off to a wonderful career in emergency medicine. I wish you a meaningful career with uh, all types of patients, including those with substance use disorder. And I, I just hope that you enjoy medicine as much as I do and, and Dr. Close and Dr. Grover do after 30 years. And I want to thank you, my favorite emergency medicine couple, uh, Dr. Reb Close and Dr. Casey Grover, the duo emergency medicine addiction medicine team. Um, your community is so, so blessed to have you. I'm fortunate to have this wonderful um, relationship to it. We build on each other as, as you mentioned so that we can help our communities and help our society. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us. I very much appreciate this opportunity just to get to chat with you. I missed getting to hang out. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.